Good afternoon from USC's Annenberg Media Center, and welcome to From Where We Are from Annenberg Radio News. For Thursday, February 22nd, 2018, I'm Nadia Caldwell. First, a news update with Leslie Ombriz. The debate over gun control is still in the headlines today. The head of the National Rifle Association today accused gun control advocates of exploiting the deadly school shooting in Florida for political gain. And earlier today, President Trump spoke again on mass shooter prevention in schools. He says hardening schools and getting rid of gun-free zones is the way to keep kids safe. We have to get smart on gun-free zones. When they see it says this is a gun-free zone, that means that Nobody has a gun except them. Nobody's going to be shooting bullets in the other direction. But the idea of arming teachers is controversial. Stephen Morrow integrates technology in South Los Angeles classrooms. He says that arming teachers could become an added stress for educators. The thought of we already have like 30 kids in a small space and then we're supposed to be teaching them. It would be a lot to also have in the back of our mind that there's, you know, a, a firearm somewhere in the room or not likely, but maybe like on your person, or if not, then at least like in a closet somewhere and just have this weird extra thing that I have in the back of your mind. President Trump says he only wants to arm teachers with military backgrounds who are highly adept to carry a gun. Some teachers have responded to the idea online and are asking to be armed with books and more school resources rather than a firearm. The president's rocky relationship with California continued today when he went after the state by claiming it's doing a lousy management job, and he bemoaned the refusal of sanctuary cities to comply with his hardline stance on immigration and deportations. Chris Perfett has more. The president was meeting with local and state officials today at the White House to talk about gun violence. He threatened to pull federal agencies out of California, saying that the state would beg to have them back within two months. Frankly, if I wanted to pull our people from California, you would have a crime nest like you've never seen in California. All I'd have to do is say ICE and Border Patrol, let California alone. You'd be inundated. You would see crime like nobody's ever seen crime in this country. California lawmakers are already decrying Trump's comments. Assemblyman David Chu said that the words were characteristic of Trump's chaotic presidency, while Senate leader Kevin DeLeon welcomed the notion of ICE departing the state. Governor Jerry Brown responded to Trump saying, We do our part, Mr. President. You do yours. For Annenberg Media, I'm Chris Perfett. USG elections have come to a close, and now undergraduates can prepare to have their voices heard by DMB. Debbie Lee and Blake Ackerman secured the undergraduate student government presidency and vice presidency in a narrow win. They received 49.2% of the vote, compared to their opponents who received 46.7%. In an interview with ATVN, Ackerman and Lee spoke of the win. We're absolutely elated, but I think yesterday's narrow win definitely reminded us that uh, this isn't a position to be taken for granted. And so we understand that the real work starts now, and we're just really excited to get going on our way. And we want to give hats off to uh, Maya and Brianna for running such a successful campaign. It was, it was definitely a tough, tough win. The pair say their campaign motto and the feasibility of their projects is what secured them the win. Debbie and I wanted to listen first. That was our motto throughout the entire election season. Get to know as many students as possible. These are going to be our constituents. That was what we stuck to. In addition to listening first, I think the feasibility of our platforms really made us stand out. Um, We have a couple of projects already at hand that we've started working on, and we're just ready to continue moving forward with it. Moving forward, the two say they will stick to their campaign promise to listen first. 
They say they already have some ideas in mind for serving their constituency. Currently, I'm sitting on a task force to work on a first-year wellness course for all first-year students as freshmen, spring admits and transfers. One day, all, all Trojans will be taking. Plan B vending machines are already in the works, um, and so we're trying to see how feasible that is in terms of our budget and seeing where it's student affairs and also the health center can play a role in this. Lee and Ackerman will officially take office on April 3rd. Tonight, the lows are in the 40s with winds around 20 miles per hour and a 20% chance of showers. Tomorrow morning, we'll see partly cloudy skies with sunshine in the afternoon. Highs tomorrow and over the weekend will stay in the low 60s and get down to low 40s at night. Right now, it's 57 degrees outside the Media Center at USC. Speaking of weather, the cold spell in Southern California might actually be part of climate change. Normally, a stable jet stream across the northern hemisphere keeps Arctic air north and warmer air south. But warmer ocean temperatures up north makes the stream wobbly, creating a wave of peaks and troughs. National Weather Service hydrologist Jamie Labor says the jet stream is causing these frosts in the L.A. area. For instance, right now across the country, we have a big trough across the western part of the United States. So as the jet stream dips down, it makes this trough. And so we have this colder air that's in place across the western part of the country. And that's why here in Southern California, we're, we're experiencing some cold temperatures for us for the winter. The trough on the, wef- on the west coast is balanced by a peak on the east coast, which is why our friends in Cleveland and Pittsburgh are setting record-breaking warm temperatures while we don an extra jacket before walking outside. Artesia State Senator Tony Mendoza resigned today after facing possible expulsion, expulsion over sexual harassment allegations. He submitted his resignation letter while the Senate prepared to vote on his expulsion. If the vote went through, Mendoza would have been the first California legislator expelled from office in more than 100 years. Mendoza has repeatedly called the investigation a farce and a violation of his constitutional rights. He said he still plans to pursue his lawsuit and possibly run for re-election to take back his seat. It's six minutes after the hour. I'm Leslie Ambris. Thanks, Leslie. Coming up on From Where We Are, Alexandria Mason tells us about a growing trend of people using food as a form of activism. California has some of the highest housing costs, as well as a shortage of housing. Some some urban planners and housing activists are lining up in support of a bill in the California Senate that aims to add housing near transit stops. But Christine De, Le- Christine De Leon reports others. We'll have that coming up shortly. Yosemite is one of the most visited national parks. Millions of visitors arrive every year for its granite cliff sides, thundering waterfalls, and sweeping mountaintop views. But there's another thing visitors might be noticing at Yosemite. Dying trees, and they're dying at an unprecedented rate. John Corley traveled to Yosemite to find out why trees are dying and how they're causing problems for park staff. I mean, this is a ponderosa pine right here. My name is Scott Gediman. I'm a park ranger and a public affairs officer here in Yosemite National Park. This one's dead right here. We're here in, in Yosemite Valley, which is really um, the heart of the park. Well, Yosemite Valley is is really uh, where people go, and I, I, I like to say kind of the greatest hits. People come here for Yosemite Falls. Yosemite Falls is the highest waterfall in North America, the fifth highest waterfall in the world. 
people come to see that famous granite monolith half dome is just to the east of us there's sentinel rock just a little bit west there's el capitan and so with literally millions of trees that are dead or dying the bark beetle is a naturally occurring insect happens with us is that we've had five years of drought. The trees can be naturally resistant to the bark beetle, but what happens is that as the drought has gotten worse, the trees are drought stressed, meaning their natural mechanisms for fighting off the bark beetle are weakened. So the bark beetle will then go and infest more trees than they would normally and then that causes the mortality or the trees to die. Can you see them on the tree anywhere? No, they would be between the bark and the layer. They, they kind of burrow themselves in. They're about the size of a, a grain of rice. And so what we're doing right now is cutting down the hazard trees. You probably saw a lot on the side of the road as you drove in. And what, when we say a hazard tree, this is a tree, for example, this is a park house that, like if that ponderosa pine fell, it could hit that. And so what we'll do is we'll try to mitigate trees falling on homes, on hotels, on roads. Climate change is certainly an impact here. We're seeing it in terms of habitat and its effect on the environment. Is this drought natural? And it's something that is being studied, and it's one of those things that we don't have you know, the definitive answer, and I don't know that anyone does. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, are names known around the world. Ada Lovelace, Grace Hopper, not so much. But these two women helped build what is now known as the Internet. Author Claire Evans shines a light on forgotten female technologists in her brand new book, Broadband. Match Volume producer Thomas Carroll caught up with her to figure out why this book needed to be written. Uh, do you mind introducing yourself? My name is Claire L. Evans, and I am a human woman living in Los Angeles. We're, talk we're talking today specifically because there's a major event happening in your life. Can you give me a few sentences on what that event is? Uh, in a few weeks, I will be publishing my very first book with Penguin Random House called Broadband, which is a feminist history of the internet that I've spent the last two odd years working on. Why write this book? Well, um, there's a need for it in the world. There have been a couple of books touching on this material, specifically on individual people, but there hasn't really been a historical survey that focuses specifically on women's contributions to computing, programming, networking, and the web, uh, all in one. And I felt like it was a valuable kind of counter canon that needed to be part of the story. There are lots of technological histories that focus on, you know, the, your classic, you know, programmer, rags to riches, Silicon Valley garage stories, you know, the stories of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and all these people that we know very well, but there haven't been that many um, equally you know, thorough considerations of the other kinds of contributions that make our world what it is. Why hasn't it been written before? I'm not sure. I think there are different kinds of contributions. Um, a lot of technological history has emphasized hardware historically, you know, the guys that invented the boxes, but 
what really affects the world, what really changes the world is how people use those boxes. And I never want to be essentialist about gender, but a lot of the time when you're looking for women's contributions to technology, it tends to be in these use-oriented spaces, places like you know, uh, user experience design, web design, interactive design, also programming, um, things like you know, applying software to social good or to something actionable and useful for people. Those tends to be the places where women have found space to work in the history of computing. And so I think it's not so much pivoting away from men, but pivoting towards use and understanding, you know, that the role that computing plays in our world isn't just one of, you know, plugs and circuits and transistors. It's also one of symbols and language and meaning and connection. It's almost an alchemic process. You had this idea and now there's this physical manifestation of that original idea. There's this physical object, a book. What does that feel like? It's so weird. I mean, just because it's it was a text document on my computer for so many years, the process of transitioning from text document to bound and printed object is like way faster than I thought it would be. That's the crazy thing for me. I basically hit send on my final draft and then my publisher like took that document and bound it in a galley and sent it to like the press even when we are still copy editing that's how it works so the the copy of the book that goes out to the media to reviewers to to long lead press to you know people that the publisher wants to read it early that copy is literally the copy that I you know I'm sitting at my computer like okay I guess I'm done send you know there's there's a whole bunch of proofreading and copy editing and changing that happens after that and it's just that's the way that it's done in publishing is is I don't know it blows my mind um, but yeah I mean all that it takes to make a book out of a file is just printing it out and binding it it's this like weird uh, I don't know it's just it's just like you just have to decide it's done if someone just decides it's done and hits print and it, it becomes a book before that it was a file and then it becomes a book in my mind it's still a file and I read it and I, there's still things where I wish like, oh, I, sh I should have changed that. But I mean, it's kind of like making music or making anything. You know, you always feel like uh, it's it's you feel like it's never done. But at some point, you just have to sort of like loosen your grip and let it go out into the world. Otherwise, you will labor over it for the rest of your life. And no one will read it. And no one will read it. And I want people to read it. Plus, this is only my first book. You know, there's a, there's if it does OK, I'll get to do another one and I'll get to do another one after that. And it'll just be a process of refinement I'll get better at the process I hope I'll understand it better and um, you know maybe tailor my working methods accordingly Clara Evans thank you for your time today really appreciate it thanks Tom that was match volume producer Thomas Carroll in conversation with author Claire Evans <laughs> Now we'll bring you the story with Christine DeLeon. SB 827 is a bill that would override local zoning restrictions to allow more multi-story housing units to be built near transit lines. It was proposed by California State Senator Scott Weiner to potentially help end the state's housing shortage. He's a Democrat from the San Francisco area. Mark Valianados from Abundant Housing LA thinks local governments have prevented new housing from being built near transportation and jobs. He says SB 827 will help bring housing where we need housing the most. I mainly support it because to me it is unwise to say that like 100 feet or 200 feet from a train station you can only have one single family house. That's a kind of 
inefficient use of the land. LA is divided into 35 community plan areas, and each area can set rules for how the land is used. Valinato says overriding these plans would help the city confront its need for more housing. And so this is the state coming in saying that's dumb, that's hurting our climate change goals, that's hurting our housing goals. We're going to come in and say at least allow a mid-rise building when you're close to transit. Among other reforms, SB 827 would remove all density limits and parking requirements on any project within a half mile of a major transit corridor and prevent local governments from imposing height limits. I feel like people understand that we need more housing because there's a housing crisis that leads, contributes to rising homelessness, rising rents, a lot of problems here in California. But the question is whether people want to give up that local control over the size of buildings and the type of buildings. And the point is that those local plans, they may have some good things about them, but they also may not take into account the transit investments and the desire to allow more people to, to live close to like a train or good bus service. Just because you put more housing near transit does not at all mean the people in that housing are going to use that transit. That's Mark Ryavik from the Venice Stakeholders Association. He's a former legislative analyst for the L.A. City Council and chief deputy tax assessor for L.A. County. I'm for local control, and we're going through a process in Venice doing it wholesale with no sensitivity to local conditions, is blatantly undemocratic. We're the ones that are here, and we're the ones that have to live with the results. Ryavec fears SB 827 would destroy the local community vibe that defines Venice. I heard everybody, or many people, angry that builders are maxing out the three stories. In other words, building these big, huge, ugly three-story stucco boxes, which don't fit in with the old craftsman-style architecture. Frankly, if Mr. Weiner wants to try this, he could pass a bill that just affects the city and county of San Francisco. SB 827 supporter Mark Valianatos says the bill doesn't have to change the character of neighborhoods. He says a city could impose aesthetic requirements for facades under SB 827. Yeah, we need to plan for a diverse city where there's all types of options for different people, because otherwise we'll again end up in the situation where people have to leave, people are forced under the streets, people are getting displaced, people are fighting about every project because they're scared of change because they think that if they have to leave their apartment, they'll never find another one. The bill is still under discussion, but it's getting a lot of criticism. At least three LA City Council members and a variety of community organizations have come out against SB 827, saying it would increase gentrification. They say what California needs is more affordable housing. For Annenberg Media, I'm Christine DeLeon. Activism comes in various forms, even some things as simple as what you eat. Alexandra Mason reports on decolonizing the diet. What does vegan mean to you? Mm, you eat healthy. This is six-year-old Witzine Serrata. And as you can hear, she's probably one of the youngest vegan enthusiasts around L.A. But she admits she does love cheese. Do you think when you get older, you'll still stay indigenous vegan or vegetarian? Yes. Why? Because it's because all the unhealthy food, like cows and pigs and chickens, sounds gross. <laughs> sounds gross? <laughs> Witsin was born vegan. Her mom, Claudia Serrato, kept an indigenous vegan diet throughout her pregnancy. But Witsin doesn't know all her mom's reasonings behind the indigenous vegan diet just yet. For now, she just knows eggs and cheese aren't on the menu. Today, we're talking decolonization. Like liberation, like activism, like 
full-blown justice. But don't forget to add food before all those words. Yes, we're decolonizing the diet, not language, wardrobe, religion, or land. Today, we're focusing on what we're putting in our bodies, starting with a little history lesson. Before the Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire in the 16th century, the basic staples of the indigenous Mexican diet were corn and chili peppers. Other natively grown items like beans, squash, zucchini, avocado, and other veggies were also a part of the mix. Then comes Spanish colonization, introducing meat, dairy, and rice to the indigenous diet for the first time. I began to research products that are really strongly in Mexican food, uh, particularly beef, chicken, and pork. That's Claudia Serrato. And outside of being the mother of six-year-old Witzine, she's a community chef and anthropologist but not like skulls and bones and stuff. And I wanted to understand, well, where did these foods come from? Um, why is it that we're suffering from health diseases? Why is my grandfather told that he can't eat these meats? And in that process, I began to find out that these are not native products, that these came from colonization. Serato is getting her doctorate from Washington State University. And although she's months away from officially being doctor, her introduction to vegan vegetarianism it's surprisingly simple. I had moved to Northern California, and I was living out there. Um, it was in Humboldt County, and everybody there was vegetarian or vegan. And at first, you know, being so young, I was only in my 20, 21. I was really impressionable, but I also want, didn't want to not be cool. So I decided, oh, well, I could be vegetarian. No problem, you know, and, and that way I'll fit in and I'll be cool. But indigenous veganism transcends the cool factor. The idea of decolonizing your diet is a return to a diet of your ancestors, one free of foods introduced by colonizers. And for many indigenous communities, this was a plant-based diet. Part of my indigenous vegan approach meant liberating my body from colonization, um, but also to colonial diseases that I was being told you know, was, was prone to get because I was a woman of color. You know, all of that didn't make sense to me, right? And a lot of um, people of color, and in this area, a lot of Latinos are really sick with food-related diseases. I mean, ultimately, that's what's killing our people. Fast food in communities of color is like sunshine in L.A. In South L.A., three out of four restaurants are fast food, and 98% of South L.A. is non-white. Limited healthy options are also an issue in East L.A., where vegan chef Jocelyn Ramirez grew up. I feel like before I kind of stumbled upon like this way of life and eating, like I was asleep, right? Like I thought like McDonald's and Jack in the Box, like that's just the way we eat, right? Tacos on the corner, like you don't even know what the meat is made out of, like that's just what we eat. It's what's around us and that's it. But just because the option of vegan food is available, doesn't always mean people come running with their mouths or minds open. Like, I ask people on my team to not specifically say that the things are vegan, just to say, like, oh, we have um, ceviche today, and it's made with heart of palm. You know? Like, vegan is not in there, vegetarian is not in there. Because it literally does scare people off. Vegan Mexican food to an average person brings some uncertainty, mainly because meat and dairy have certainly become staples in Mexican dishes. That's why Ramirez tries to use the element of surprise by not telling customers it's vegan. Then she gets reactions like this. One of the men who was there was, um, he was like a big guy and he was hungry and he's like, oh, what are you serving today? 
and I explained, I was like, oh, here's the menu. We have um, mushroom fajitas, they're oyster mushrooms, shredded up. I explained everything. This is cilantro rice. I have this, that, I have ceviche. And he was like, oh, okay, okay. And then at the end I was like, oh, it's all vegetarian. And he gave me this face of like shock and disgust. She says he eventually came back for a second plate. For people like Ramirez and Serrato, veganism is a reclamation of roots and culture and a recognition of the smaller parts of colonization that we don't always think about, but impacts so much of our modern lives. But it depends how you like your activism served. Get it? Served? Okay. For Annenberg Media, I'm Alexandria Mason. It's hard to get around Los Angeles without taking Interstate 10. Today on Street Smarts, Kaylee Wells tells us about the fame and infamy of the 10. So much of L.A.'s story is told by the Santa Monica Freeway. Well, at least where I live, that's what it's called. It's also been named the Rosa Parks Freeway, the San Bernardino Freeway, the Christopher Columbus Transcontinental Highway. That's a mouthful. But we all recognize it as Interstate 10, or the 10 to us Angelinos. It can take you from Florida to California, but it took 33 years to get there. It wasn't finished until 1990, but it comes from a famous ancestor. Before the 10 came to Los Angeles, travelers came down Route 66 to get to the ocean. Today, the 10 ends at Santa Monica Pier, just like Route 66 once did. If you stroll down the boardwalk, you'll see a sign that reads 66 End of the Trail. It stands next to a shop with Route 66 souvenirs. Standing there, surrounded by the tourists, you can imagine the sense of accomplishment families in the 1930s must have felt when they finally reached the ocean. It stretches from coast to coast and sets plenty of records along the way. In Houston, it's the widest, at 26 lanes. And in a rural stretch of Texas, it wins for most lenient speed limit at 80 miles per hour. The record it sets in Los Angeles? I'll give you one guess. This year, Los Angeles won for most congested city in the world. Again. And LA Weekly said the 10 boasts the worst stretch of traffic in Los Angeles. It's eastbound, between the 405 and the 110, at rush hour. That's my daily commute. But along with the hundreds of thousands of people the 10 carries very slowly across Los Angeles every day, it tells L.A.'s story of historic travel, of notorious traffic, and L.A.'s place at the end of the trail, right by the Pacific Ocean. With Street Smarts, I'm Kaylee Wells. The theremin produces a beautiful, haunting, unmistakable sound, resembling a sad Slavic song. It's a mysterious electronic instrument often used in old movies to produce spooky sound effects. In this sound portrait, professional musician and thereminist Randy George tells us how he plays it to produce melodic sounds. I am a professional thereminist. I live and work in Los Angeles, and I'm a musician, and I teach, perform, provide, do a little bit of computer programming, specialized in music software. 
the theremin, it's an electronic musical instrument and it's played without any physical contact whatsoever. There are theremin parts for movie scores. I have been playing since February of 2006. I had never heard of the instrument before that. I was drawn specifically to how it was played, how a person actually creates sound and music with it. So there's two hands that are moving. They move their right hand towards and away from the vertical antenna, and that changes the pitch of the sound. And when I come back away, come towards my body from the antenna with the same hand, it goes back down in pitch. The volume hand, the sound starts from basically silent and gets louder. And coming back down, it gets softer again until it's silent. Closest analog to the theremin is the human voice. The only difference is, instead of singing with your vocal cords, you're singing with the motions of your two hands. When somebody tells you about it, your immediate reaction's like, no way, it's impossible. It's just a crazy, crazy difficult instrument to learn. And the learning curve is so steep that if somebody wants to try it from scratch and they've never played any musical instruments before and they've never sang, then that learning curve is going to be way steeper. It's practically going to be like climbing the face of Yosemite. There's a lot of things that theremin can do that many other instruments can't do and you get a real feel for how powerful it is and how much sound you're working with. was produced by Christine DeLeon. That's it for From Where We Are Today. I'm Nadia Caldwell. From all of us at Annenberg Radio News, have a great evening.